Hello, and welcome to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. This is your host, Jeremiah Jenny, broadcasting high above the Dongcheng District of Beijing. With me in the studio is my co-host, David Moser. David, how are you doing? I'm great, but I'll get better. Uh, I'm actually partly joking, but I mean, I just had a root canal yesterday. And they put a temporary crown that I'm supposed to go back and get it filled. And and, uh, and then somehow they said, don't eat solid things. And But I was just brushing my teeth last night and the, the, the temporary crown or whatever it is fell out of my mouth. So I've got to go back later this today after this podcast, in fact, and go through the whole thing again with uh, anesthetic and the needles and the mouth opening and it's... I'm looking forward. Let's finish this podcast quick. I want to get back to that uh, root canal. Barbarians at the gate. The <laughs> podcast that's preferable to many things, but only if they are, in fact, an emergency root canal. I got a couple of things here I'd like to talk about. Now, this past couple of weeks, I have been traveling around China. I just got back from Qinghai province, where I was out in the Tibetan Plateau working on a program. And it was a lot of fun. Great group of people. Uh, beautiful scenery. Lots of surveillance. But, you know, it is what it is. Being embedded in the Chinese media ecosystem and also being bombarded somewhat, you know, on purpose, of course, by reading, you know, the Western media, I feel completely caught in the middle of all this. And a couple of things have really stuck out for me in the last week, and I'm going to subject you to them right now. The first is this, the kind of tit for tat back and forth between the U.S. and China is incredibly counterproductive. And I'm not, I'm going to be speaking here principally about the U.S. side just because, I don't know, I'm from America. I feel a little bit more comfortable telling Americans what to do than telling China what to do, but I'll get to that in a moment. But this idea that every time China does something that's annoying, we have to respond by doing the, almost the exact same thing. The problem with that, like for example, yes, China blocks all of these different sites. It's really frustrating to get on the internet here. They also, for that matter, block the app that's TikTok. I mean, you can get on Douyin, right? But you can't get on the international TikTok. But to ban it, to block it in the U.S., this is moronic. Because all you're doing is you're just going, you're just doing what China does back at it. And that will never work. And let me, let me explain why this is. Dealing with the PRC from the U.S. perspective is a lot like the way liberals in the U.S. deal with Trump. They feel like that they have this kind of, you know, like the liberal elites in the United States, like people like you and me, right? We feel we have like history on our side or the long arc of justice or whatever it is. And they, we can't understand why there would actually be people out there who would support somebody like Trump. And the same way in the U.S., I think the U.S. people in the U.S. government don't understand like they feel like, well, of course, there's still this idea of American exceptionalism. Well, of course, the Chinese people, given their druthers, would, would go the way of democracy and freedom and Coca-Cola and the American Eagle and all that stuff. And they can't understand why uh, that doesn't happen. And the response by the liberal elites in the U.S. and by the U.S. government towards China is they try to kind of own 
the their opposition. You know, they th- they can't, they can't understand why every time Trump is con- is accused of something, is proven to have done something, you know, it, or has it has some sort of scandal, why that doesn't completely finish him off. In the same way, the U.S. government looks at China and they're like, how can how can you possibly like screw up COVID, the the end of COVID so badly, and yet still get away with that? And it makes them frustrated, and they feel like what we need to do is really kind of push people to just see how ridiculous this entity is, whether it's Trump or the Chinese Communist Party. And of course, that never works. Why? Because both Donald Trump and the Chinese Communist Party live for this shit. They are as petty as you can possibly be. You can't out-petty them. And going for their knees doesn't work because they're all their masters at going low. And this is true with Trump in the U.S. This is true with the Chinese Communist Party in China. Attacking them only makes them stronger with their base. You know, and part of that too, to be fair, is that both the Chinese Communist Party and, you know, the MAGA movement, Trump as, a, you know, Trump Incorporated, whatever, they do a really good job playing at the emotions of a base that feels like it's under attack. You know, this idea that, you know, they're trying to get to you, but they have to go through us first, that resonates. And, you know, part of that is the, the fact that many, very often, you know, liberal elites in the U.S. and, you know, Westerners in general in regards to China just assume that they're on the right side of history. And they don't understand why that would be such, whether it's true or not, they don't understand why that would be such an enormous turnoff for the people that they ultimately are trying to reach. I've got more, but I'm going to stop there for a moment so you can tell me why the first part's wrong before I go go crazy in the second part. <laughs> well, it's not wrong. You raised a lot of things there. It's hard to know which one to, to talk about first. But of course, there is a, this general similarity between the, the two sides arguing, the left, right, and the Chinese uh, and the West, I guess, but the U.S. mainly, tribalism, and the phenomenon is not that that different. One of the ways it plays out in the U.S. and China, of course, is when, you, when one side criticizes the other, and one of the instinct is, especially if the criticism has validity, the instinct is to say, well, what about you? And, and that's the answer to the question. Well, what about your, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it happens to be? be. What about it? What about ism? And there's a word for it, right? What about ism is not a very good answer because it, because for one thing, it's, it at least logically is a little bit self-defeating, self-admission that, well, you know, you beat your wife. Well, what about you beating your wife? That's an admission that you beat your wife. So that's one problem. But the, the, the two, but the two sides, the way that works out is not quite symmetrical because the Chinese start from a vantage point where we deal with other countries on a sort of pragmatic, uh, uh, you know, uh, basis. What can we get from the deal? And we don't interfere in your private affairs, what they consider your inner, your domestic problems, your human rights issues. We won't talk about that. We shake our hands, we do the, the business deal, and we both get advantage. That's the starting point of the Chinese vantage point. And by the way, they see that as a positive thing. They see that as as a more uh, uh, a more so productive, peaceful way of dealing with with international relationships on a win win situation. The United States doesn't start from that that uh, starting point from from that uh, premise. We start from the premises. We have certain values for you know the internationals for our own country, but also for human rights issues. And so, uh, if we see so the World Bank, for example, why has China ha- you know had success with the AIIB? Uh, as the world, you know, as a comp- competitor to the World Bank, because the premise is, you know, we just uh, do productive things 
whatever the local, whatever the uh, domestic situation is in the countries that we're dealing with. The U.S. starts with the premise that no, we're going to look at the way you treat your people, whether you have human rights abuses, whether you have you're, whether you're a uh, despot, whether you have hold nuclear weapons and, and so forth, and then our uh, our decision whether to, to to deal with you on a on a inter international basis to do business deals and international trade will depend in some part, if not completely on the basis of how we score you on that. So we don't start on it with an equal playing field, right? But the other is that uh, there is some ways in which both sides really do see themselves as being on the right side of history. And we tend to, the West or the, China, the US tends to, uh, as you say, vilify China and say they're, they're, they're evil, they're, they're, they're uh, you know, whether communists after all, that's, that's synonymous with evil. Um, and of course, they have all these human rights violations. The Chinese, of course, and we could go into a lot of detail on this, but see a different uh, a different result in their tra trajectory. They see themselves as being, in a way, the, the savior of the Chinese nation. They brought economic um, prosperity to the people, brought you know eight hundred million people out of poverty, or however many. Probably true. Uh, also, they're very proud that this is we are. Uh, they want to, they're, they're very interested in or very obsessed with saying we have a kind of democracy if you want to define democracy as doing good for the people. And we have, we have a kind of a different democracy, which is called whole process democracy. And what we do is we have, we're responsive to people's needs. And so we give people what they need to give them a better life, whether it be bullet trains or whatever. This is our job and we're doing a good job and we've created a safer society. We actually did a good job with COVID. They actually did in the very beginning, right? So, so they see this this human rights issue as a kind of a picky side issue, which they see as just one of the one of the kind of onerous tasks they need to keep public uh, or national security, domestic security, and, and prosperity and stability. So they kind of see those things. Well, they don't really want to do that. Just like people don't really want to execute criminals, but it's you just have to do it because it's you want to keep the world safe, right? So they see us as harping on a kind of inconsequential aspect, which they want to to downplay, and we're not upplaying what they see as a great contribution they've made to human flourishing and so on and so forth, right? The U.S. on the other hand, uh, we're having this horrible problem with guns right now. The Chinese will point that out. Uh, we've had a horrible problem with drugs, with economic inst uh, inequality, and so on and so forth. And they, you know, they, they castigate us for that. And they're right to do so. And they sort of see us as being hypocritical. Uh, they don't see it as, well, what about you? They see our problems as something they don't have. They don't have a problem with guns and mass shootings. They, they did well with COVID. They don't have a problem with economic equality, really, because they're, they're making it better and better, whereas it's arguably the U.S. is not. So you're, what you say is right in this tribalism and the tit-for-tat kind of thing you're talking about. I think it's true. But first of all, as I said, we're not starting with the same premise of what that relationship should look like. And on the other hand, both sides have a point. It's just that it's in our vested interest to ignore the good point they, they make about our problems and foibles and to concentrate on theirs. And then the, the, the mirror image, vice versa, happens with them is, is that they're only concentrating you know, on their good points and, and emphasizing our bad points. So I see it as the same kind of thing. Of course, that's, that's the case with uh, Fox News and Trump also is you, 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 you know, if you hate, if you love Trump, you're going to downplay his, his uh, grabbing women by the beep. But uh, but if but if you hate Trump, of course you're going to play all that up and, and ignore some of the good that he might have done during his his uh, term of office. 
Just now when you were talking about grabbing, were you censoring yourself or using the Chinese word? Oh, what? Did, was that censored? I didn't realize it. Oh. Maybe it was subconscious. Maybe I just did subconsciously. Uh, yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah that, that, that'll, that'll definitely make the cut. I, 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 I want to take that point. That's, the whataboutism is an interesting point. Right. You know, because there are valid critiques of both countries from both sides. I think that the problem is, and you, you identified this, not just in the U.S., not just in China, not just the U.S. and China, but just in general, this kind of rise of tribalism, this idea that you know ideology or identity has to be purchased, deployed, manifested, and you know displayed as a package deal. Like you can't, you you take you you don't just simply choose like. On this issue, I feel this way. On this point, I feel that way. On this particular, you know, topic, this is how I approach it. It is I have signed up in column A, or I am signed up in column B, and if I am in column A, I must align myself with all of these particular boxes that need to be checked, and it can't go back and forth. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges, right? Now. I mean, just generally speaking, is that the lack of nuance, the lack of any idea that that just ideology can exist on a spectrum that you neither need to be 100% pro-China panda hugger it can do no wrong or you have to be on the other side you know and that's that's how the state media here wants it they don't want to hear anything they don't want to say anything they don't want to hear anything that is even the least bit critical of the country on the other side you have you know voices and and I want to say, you know, for the everyone, I, I was talking with somebody, somebody about this this week. And they're like, well, you know, the West is biased too. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Western media is biased. All media is biased. As academics, you and I know part of the, one of our biggest parts of our jobs is correcting for bias. But at the same time, you know, when we talk about whataboutism, we talk about biased media, and we talk about all these things that are very similar between the two countries. That doesn't mean they're the same. That is to say, uh, you know, yes, the Western Western media is biased towards China. I, I'll accept that. The state media is biased, uh, you know, against the West or against America right now. I'll get that. But just because these two things are similar does not mean they're the same. What I, the the analogy that I used recently at a lecture when someone brought this up was, you know, according to ChatGPT, my cat pumpkin has 96% of the same DNA as a Bengal tiger. I know which one, actually, I'm going to let, you know, walk around our living room while we're <laughs> taping this. And, you know, just because, so this is kind of like, I, I get the what about is it, I get the back and forth, but this idea, you know, that we can't look at things and say, okay, yeah, these things are similar, but they're not the same. Or this idea that we need to simply just align our values with whatever team that we've chosen, whatever the jersey we're wearing on our backs is going to dictate how we see these things. And, you know, I, I, I get your point, and I completely agree with you about things like, for example, you know, guns in America are a huge problem. The Chinese state media is absolutely right to point that out, as, of course, is the U.S. media right to point out that. In fact, the Chinese state media, often either they, they do it and acknowledge it or they do it they don't acknowledge it. They're just taking a lot of their coverage from the U.S. media. So I think that one of the things I would say, if I was going to talk to somebody in the U.S. government about this, and of course, you know, they don't let me do that anymore, but with the restraining orders, the United States really, the first thing we can do, if we really are interested in changing the relationship or, if you will, owning China, if that seems to be the goal, we have to figure our own shit out first. Because I think, you know, it's never, it's, it will, it's never been about undermining the legitimacy 
of the party. It's never about undermining, you know, public faith in in Chinese governments. It's always been the, the times the U.S. has been most successful in terms of soft power and otherwise vis-a-vis China has been when it presented an attractive alternative. And it definitely has not been doing that in the last 10, 20, well, you know, quite some time. You know, it's a little bit like, again, going back to this like American political analogy. It's like negative campaigning. You know, once both sides go negative, right, then it becomes a pox on both their houses. You know, the, the, the only time you know, for the U.S. to really succeed, what they need to do is stay high. And I don't mean, you know, in, in a sort of cannabis sense. What I mean is they have to, when, when China takes the low road, stick in the high, stay in the high road. Yes, it is impossible to buy property in Beijing if you're, near, if you're a foreigner and you want to buy property anywhere near a state entity. That doesn't mean you make the same damn law in Florida and Texas. Yes, they don't let journalists in on any kind of, uh, they, they make it very difficult for journalists to get in. That's because that's what they do. Don't reciprocate and make it difficult for Chinese journalists. The same thing with academics. There may be, I mean, I'm sure there are some legitimate state security, national security concerns about certain Chinese academics who are going to the U.S., but I'm telling you, the number of people I know who are legitimate academics, scientists, researchers who are finding it impossible to get to the U.S. right now for any number of reasons or have to fill out just onerous and, frankly, insulting paperwork to do it. It's just shocking to me. And yes, as as we all know, going into China, you get the same questions and you get the same insulting like questions from the sometimes at the the border. That doesn't mean we have to do that too. And I don't understand why it seems to be this like this kind of like race to the bottom for the last like five or six years. Yeah, no, that's very true. And it's it's also true, sadly, that it wasn't that bad in decades past in terms of. Uh, in terms of the, the the Chinese presence in the U.S. academia and, and other aspects of life, it's only recently with this uh, you know this this political convulsion in the U.S. It seems like like you say this 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 left right extreme tribalism has sort of forced people into these silos where you know you have to be one hundred percent down with the, whatever the mantra is that it wasn't the, so bad in the past. But this might be another place where the U.S. despite the fact that the U.S. is Moving a little bit towards China in that in that way, in terms of censorship and in terms of blocking information it doesn't like, uh, which violates our First Amendment type of freedom of speech principles, right? But still, there is this asymmetry, which is sort of in in the in the in the two governments face off, right? And you're talking about at the governmental level, the the what the government's policy is and what the gov- those people in power in the government and both sides. What they think and what they do is important geopolitically because those are the people who are going to really actually make the policies and do the big movement. As far as the ordinary people in both countries, the Lao Bai Xing, the people who are just absorbing those media, the viewpoint and attitudes of those people uh, sometimes goes unmonitored and unmentioned because it's by no means, you know, you can do public opinion but by no means is the vast majority of the United States, you know, against China and hates their policies. Most people in America really don't, frankly, know that much about China and their policies and don't really have much of a strong opinion about it because it doesn't impact their daily lives. The same thing, I dare say, goes here. Uh, they're, they're hearing all kinds of bombastic propaganda on the radio and everything. But really, the, the, the ordinary Lao Bai Singh here, do they really do not hate America? Not there is that, but if you're on a one-to-one basis, they just treat people like the people. There's not that much difference between the Lao Bai Xings of those two, the two countries, right? So that's one area. So there's this. We have to really make sure that the, we're not talking about, you know, if 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 the people in the U.S., you know, if we say, I don't like China, do we mean Chinese culture? Well, of course not. 
Do we mean Chinese people? Of course not. We don't know them. If we do, they're, they're just like us. We mean the government and the government in power, those in power. And the same thing otherwise. When, the China, when China bashes the U.S., they're not really bashing U.S. culture per se. I mean, they may, th- that has been you know, an ideological thing that the U.S. Uh, ha- is a decadent culture and, and they have no respect for their elders and there's violence and all this kind of stuff. But in terms of U.S. culture, they actually we, they accepted Western culture, U.S. culture. They teach in the universities. They like uh, Mark Twain and Shakespeare and China and um, uh, movies. They all like American culture and the, and people. They're not don't have a, a, anything against American culture per se. It's the American attitude towards China, the American government attitude, which they see as insulting and you know sort of uh, demeaning. So the thing that I'm trying to say is, on the one hand, you have a government here that has a very controlled media. And so everything you see here is going to be very black. It is going to reflect this tribalism that, that because the government here controls the media. So you're not going to hear very much of this nuance in state media. You're going to hear only you know, the, 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 the party line on Ukraine, only the party line on uh, the South China Sea and so forth, right? So we can say, yes, these messages, you know, and the, the government is purveying, you know, those things are one-sided and extremist, you know, anti-American. If you really look honestly, honestly, the Chinese government looking at the West, and if they're just looking at the government, that's one thing, the House of, the House of Representatives and Congress. If you look at America and the American media, it's a much messier thing. We don't have state-controlled media here. We do have a kind of a, a corporate-controlled media, and we have a kind of a narrative. But if you're really looking at the, at the American uh, impressions or media uh, images and information about China, it's all over the map. There are people. There are people who are writing. All, for for that matter, here you can't find any criticism of uh, Xi Jinping's policies. Right? There's 50 books a day criticizing, uh, you know, B- uh, Biden and Obama and the Demo- You know, the, the American media scene is a complete mosaic of all kinds of opposing opinions. It's a messy d- domain. That's very, very, very different. That's very, very different. And we, we sort of say, oh, the American media is all bashing China, and the Chinese media is all bashing America. Not quite. You can say maybe the mainstream media, but that's not even quite right. If you really look at mainstream media, media in the United States, there are, there's lefty and righty and all different kinds of media, and there's, there's sort of lower-level corporate media that's not, that's not so beholden to you know, the corporate interests. And, and so that is, a, that is definitely an asymmetry. And when Americans, like our good friend Ambassador Burns, makes this case very well, I think. I think he's doing very well as an ambassador. This, this aspect of the American attitude towards information, freedom, and information control is something that we aren't going to back down on and the, we are proud of. We're, that doesn't mean we're proud of all those messages because some of them are ugly and counterproductive and, and filled with neo-Nazis and, and uh, wokeism and everything, right? It's not that we're saying the, the messages are all great. It's that the premise, that the, 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 the principle of allowing those messages to flourish is one that we're not going to back down on and we're not going to apologize. So some, some media criticizes China. That's too bad. We don't tell them not to. They can do whatever they want to do. They can praise you because they can criticize you. But when, you look, when we look at, at you, at the Chinese media, all we can say is this... We don't know whether this reflects the will of the people or not. So, I mean, there's, there's a, a deep asymmetry, asymmetry there that we really have to take into account. And I think it's, this is one place where we can't just say, oh, you do it too, right? Because this is what, the, what we want to hear. The message they want to promote is, well, isn't your Fox News and isn't that biased against China too? Don't you do the same thing? 
Well, we, what do you mean we? It's not Biden that did it. It's not the Democrats, not the Republicans. Maybe the system, the corporate-run media system, has a tendency to you know, project certain messages. But you can't say that this is something that we as American government is doing. Maybe I'm oversimplifying, and some people, some more people far to the left of me would say I'm just full of shit, right? But I mean, this, I think there is a very di big difference there we need to keep into account. Well, I think we pretty much said enough to piss people off on both sides <laughs> at this point. But, uh, you know, I, I think that, again, if I was looking at it, if I was, if I was giving some advice to the U.S. government, yeah. you know, I think, one, I think we got to figure our own shit out first. Yeah. Every time, you know, whenever China... Wait, what can I stop you there? What do you mean when you say first? I'm not sure that... I don't that's I'm not sure I agree with that. I think we need to take care of our own shit. But I don't think that we should wait until we've we've solved our own shit before we criticize theirs. No, no, I'm I think not, we can do the same thing. I'm we not saying we should ever what I mean is rather than spending all of this energy, right, trying to find ways to undermine China. I think we probably need to spend a little bit more of that energy. No, no that's true. Yeah. So yeah. I mean rather than trying to find ways to undermine China's own technolo technological rise, we need to find ways to make our technology better. Right. Here's an example. Here's one way to do it. I, you know, I've, I've long believed this, that everybody who graduates from an American university with an advanced degree, if they are not a U.S. citizen, should get a green card stapled yeah, to their absolutely. diploma. I, yeah, the, I don't absolutely. understand why this is. Yep. We, we, we have some of the world's finest universities. We educate some of the best and brightest minds in the right. entire world, and then we make it very difficult for them to stay in the U.S. I, I don't get that. Yeah, yeah. The same thing, you know, for every, you know, every time China kicks out a journalist, every time China makes it difficult for the New York Times to get a uh, journalist in here or CNN or Al, Al Jazeera or any of the international media, the U.S. should say, you know what, if you're going to send them to China, send them here, and we'll let them cover whatever they want. You know, if they want to cover Black Lives Matter, let them cover Black Lives Matter. They want to cover school shootings. Well, now hold on. That has been the case. It was only Trump who kind of violated that by doing a tit, as we say, tit for tat and expulsion. And this is what I'm, ta yes, this is what I'm yes. talking about. That, that this was, this is, this, we need to kind of go back to the part where you know, we, there is an actual separation. There is daylight. There is a clear distinction between these two visions of society and frankly of you know how humans how humans can interact with each other you know if, if china is ramping up patriotic education and surveillance and you know these kind of these kind of things the you you know the west if it really is serious about being a values based a values based identity you know the west as it is right then they need to live those values and they need to demonstrate that those values mean something and they need to do pol have policies that differentiate them from those countries that they claim to be in some ways different from, like China, like Russia. And so this idea that we're engaging in tit-for-tat blocking, tit-for-tat laws, tit-for-tat protectionism, tit-for-tat uh, you know, expulsions of journalists, of, of diplomats, all of these things. I get that impulse. I mean, there is many, I mean, I live here. I've been here, I've lived here for a long time. I get frustrated. I get incredibly frustrated at some of the things I see in the media. I get really frustrated at some of the ways that the, the government here can be extraordinarily petty about things. And I can get why someone like, for example, like Matt Pottinger or others who have worked here, especially in the capacity as a journalist or business person, or leave China and go, you know what? You know, if they're going to do that, we should do that to them. Give them a taste of their own medicine. But the problem is the people who we want to give a taste of said medicine aren't actually drinking the medicine. What we're doing is we're smacking a lot of people who, frankly, would be, you know, are caught in the middle. 
And all we're doing is kind of convincing them that maybe the propaganda they're hearing from their side might be right. You know, it's not like this message, like when we do tit-for-tat reprisals of things, it's not like that message gets through in the state media why we're doing it. It just looks like the U.S. is being petty and vindictive. And for any time the U.S. looks petty and vindictive, the Communist Party wins. Why? Because petty and vindictive is their brand, the Chinese Communist Party. And if they can show that the U.S., the West, is just as petty, venal, vindictive, transactional as they are, they've won. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like what Lyndon Johnson one time said about, like, you know, wrestling with the pig. Yeah. You know, you both end up covered in mud. But the pig likes it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you're if you're if you're a party that you know, has exercised a particular way of of holding on to power that is transactional, that is often vindictive. You know, all of these things that we know the party has done. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm saying it's like right now, I'm pretty sure like, you know, right. my visa is already being like, you know, chopped up right now. But whatever, right. whatever, you know, the idea here is that then all they need to do to win is to convince people who are they, they have in a kind of, you know, media bubble that everybody else is just like them. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Right. It's a yeah. much harder thing to sell being different from that. No, that's right. Uh, things have gotten worse. I mean, it is true that. You know, it may have to do with the information age and social media. I don't know, but yeah, that is, it is true that, that in many ways the U.S. has grown, you know, even more has grown somewhat to to more and more mirror the Chinese attitude, not in the petty and vindictive sort of way, but it's certainly in the sensitivity and aversion to to uh, ideas to pr- promulgation of ideas that they don't that they don't like that they don't feel comfortable with. I was sort of mixed feelings about the the sort of expulsion of all the Confucius Institutes also because. I thought that I thought that the you know the U.S. certainly had a point the institutions that these weren't just neutral Chinese teaching programs. I mean, for the most part, they actually were. But on the other hand, I mean, the the people who were funding it, which is the the um, the Waiban, you know, uh, lots of money that that almost is like a ministry engine in, into its unto itself, right? Massively funded outreach policy. But of course, it wasn't neutral, culturally neutral, and politically neutral. Of course, they meant it to be an advertisement for their culture. Of course, right? So, in that sense, it was a little bit dishonest. It, and and you, I can understand why universities who hosted the the Confucius Institutes felt like that this was a kind of a queasy violation of of academic freedom, or or at least a, a academic objectivity to let this group in and pretend that it's it's merely a Chinese language program or Chinese culture program. I can see all that. But on the other hand, I mean, some of the reaction to it, I felt was a little bit, you know, too much. I mean, let the Confucius Institutes open up uh, like fast food restaurants or something like that. Let let them, you know, compete for the, for the ideal marketplace in the United States. Why not? I mean, we do have, for example, I mean, CCTV, uh, maybe CGTN, in the past, certainly has been broadcast on, on cable channels in the United States and certainly all over the world in Africa. And, you know, that's outreach. That's not neutral. Sometimes they aren't talking about China at all. But and yet there is a, an ideology and there is a political point of view there that they're pre- presenting or at least a, at least adhering. So I don't see anything wrong with that. And right now, I think the attitude in the United States is what? Let CCTV broadcast their garbage to our, you know, American citizens. No way. I mean, they're into this sort of censorship. They want to block out ideas that, that we don't like. China has this problem in a certain way is that face, you know, remember for many years, phrase was you have hurt the feelings of the Chinese people. And every time a country would do something, this phrase would, would come up. And that's what that is, is petty. 
a little bit. It's it's certainly not a serious diplomatic statement to make. You have hurt our feelings, really? Seriously? <laughs> this is diplomacy. This is international inter- relations, right? But on the other hand, yes, in a way, it's, a, it's this different dynamic that has to do with history. It has to do with humiliation, shame. Uh, they want acknowledgement. They want affirmation. So we didn't go through, what, 100 years of humiliation. We went through 100, humiliate, uh, 100 years of U.S. growth, expansion, and domination. That's our 100 years, right? Our, our so we don't feel like we need affirmation and validation for what we did. We feel like, we meaning the Americans, you know, feel like, look, what a success we were in the 20th, 20th century. You know, look what we did, what we built, and we are the beacon on the hill, right? The Chinese were uh, in the toilet at, at the beginning of the 20th century and remained there and, and by force of will came out and are now the second world's largest economy. They ought to be proud and haughty and self-confident, and yet they can't get rid of this hundred years of, of humiliation that was keenly felt and still is. And, it, and so, you know, this pivot point was the Olympics when they thought, here's our chance to show where we can be part of the world culture and we could have hold the games, host the games, and they, they went all out for it, spent a lot of money. And what happened? The foreign news media, CNN, and all this kind of stuff started saying, no, they're, they're human rights violators, blah, 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 blah. And that was a huge turning point because about that point, the, the, the international news cycle had, had arisen and social media had arisen. So everyone was playing on, on the same page, right? They already knew, we knew what, what they were thinking and they knew what we were thinking. And that was a, a moment when I think there was this shift. It was also kind of the moment when these spate of books came out at the end of the 20th century of China can say no, when they're being in this sort of nationalist, uh, sort of our anger, but also also sort of, what's the word? They feel insulted, a feeling of national insult that the other people haven't acknowledged that China is doing better now. And and they just the West just wouldn't give them that. And I think that's something they still crave. They still want Western people to say, oh, you're an equal player now. Wow, you're really, you're right up there with us. So now let's talk on equal f- footing. The, and the United States, we're still in, in an inertial you know, trajectory thinking we're still on top and we're still, you know, the predominant world culture and things are changing, right? As we know, and the U.S. is not number one in a lot of ways and, and we're, we're domestically, our political system is sick. So we need to start being a little more modest and say, ah, we've made some mistakes. Maybe we need to apologize for a few things. But if, no, of course not. The, 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 the mood of the country is not for that, right? So the U.S. is not going to admit that they've fallen a notch and that their trajectory in the future doesn't look as great as, as bright as it used to. The Chinese should probably just be proud of the fact that they've they've made a huge <laughs> progress, and they're up there, and they have a lot of a long ways to go with human rights and everything. But they ought to get over this, this thin-skinned, you know, like recently with the Qinggang and uh, Burns meeting, right? The, the the sort of tone from from the Chinese side was, well, let's hope that the ambassador can go back and talk some sense into these people that they shouldn't be so uppity and haughty and think that there's the, you know, teach them a lesson that they should be more humble and, uh, you know, treating us on an equal basis. Really, do you have to say that? Can't we just, let's just move forward and start, quit raising this issue of face. It's not an issue of face. If you want to, if you want to be a great country, be a great country, build your, you know, let more freedom reign. Let people, the people are leaving China in droves right now because they can't get what some of what they don't want to get in America, which is freedom, spiritual freedom, academic freedom, you know, freedom of whatever. Th- that's something that we have, right? Okay, if you want to be like that, 
make yourself more free. Be self-confident. Quit blocking the internet. Make your message more attractive and, and more realistic than, than the others. Don't keep saying, oh, why do you, why do you, you know, we're going to kind of be defensive and strike back why because you're you attacking us. Why are you always picking on me? Yeah, why are you always picking on me? So, I mean, that dynamic, as I'm, I'm with you, is so frustrating to see this play out when it's it's not it's like little kids shouting each other in a sandbox and it's it seems so obvious that 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 anyone like us who have lived in both systems we're acutely aware of of the problems on both sides why can't we just deal with those problems with open eyes and honestly but there's blockage on both sides the the US the information can be there and won't be censored by and large right here i think also that if you act to people to people who are aware and politically aware and, and well read they also know that but they won't can't express those feelings here but in fact the reality is the same on both sides i mean we know we both have problems let's quit being like kids and just get together and solve them maturity there's an answer rant after rant <laughs> today's a rant po uh, podcast in a way no, not even in a way. <laughs> yeah, I I, I, sh I showed up to the studio today with like a an entire like page of notes I wrote on the train and about <laughs> three cans of diet Red Bull. So I mean, this was this was always going to happen. Mm -hmm. I wonder as we kind of wind this down a little bit to the to no doubt to the great relief of uh, viewers and <laughs> sorry everyone whoever from the Ministry of State Security is in charge of transcribing this for our files. I think about the least attractive aspects of both systems, which you, one of which you just pointed out. You know, this is it possible? Looking at the U.S. and China from from the inside out, could China be China and have all the have most of the things it has now, which is you know infrastructure development, high speed rail, relatively safe you know streets, all of these things, and yet still have that if they didn't arrest people for writing poems. I think they could. And I feel the same way about the U.S. I think if there were things like sensible gun control laws, I'm not even talking about banning all guns. I'm just talking like any kind of sensible laws. That, that's not going to, despite what the extremists in the U.S. think, that's not going to be the end of American democracy and freedom. And I feel, again, it's like in China, too, sometimes he suggests like, well, you know, if, if China actually, if the Chinese government had a little bit of confidence which they clearly don't, and allowed people to give, I'm not even talking like a full-on like freedom of speech, like say whatever you want. I'm just talking like sensible, you know, allowing sensible spaces for people to critique, write, think, assemble, all of these things. Would that be the end of the Chinese experiment? I don't think so. And I, I feel the same way in the U.S. about some of the more extreme elements of the U.S. political experience, you know, like, for example, like the guns. And, you know, I wonder, if, you know, now looking from the inside out, if uh, if cooler heads, mature heads, more mature heads, something like that, will prevail. Well, your, your head and mine are fairly mature, but I don't know if we're mature enough to solve this problem in the time that we have, but I, I'm really grateful that you allowed me to try. Yeah, I certainly agree with the point that you made that, you know, if China were to loosen up in those ways, I don't think that, that the results would be as catastrophic as they think. I think they really lack the sort of positivity and confidence they should have. They think all these, uh, you know, technical innovations, we can incorporate them here, but we can always like weed out the part that involves freedom of, of expression. And we can still give people, you know, economic freedom, you know, technology, happiness, distraction, entertainment, and so on, and keep China's culture still going ahead as a cultural force. 
I think they're wrong about that. We, it's a well-known fact that people don't become, you know, ultimately happy just on the basis of prosperity. That's a dead end. We saw it, you know, in the, the hippies in the 60s. Just being rich and have all this stuff doesn't mean that you have this other thing, which they want to have, you know, intellectual and spiritual and, uh, you know, ex a human experience that they can explore and, you know, ideas and, and creativity that they can explore, right? That's one of the things that people want once they have the, the, uh, the, the, the basic uh, requirements of safety and prosperity and all that kind of thing, right? So it's going to bite them in the butt eventually. They're going to have to figure out a way to get that, but it seems like that's not their way of doing it. They, they think whatever comes next, we can always keep everything blocked out, keep the ideology, or at least keep it professing it and give them the sort of happiness, right? So I, th I think that's the thing that I, I think they really could be the new global power, the reigning superpower, I guess you'd put it, if they could find out a way, find it in themselves to, to let those two sides of humanity, of the needs of human beings, flourish together, and they still have not made that decision. And as long as they don't, you're still going to have people try to get away from here, and you're still going to get castigation by other countries in the world. Well, David, thank you, and thank you all for, thank you for your insights. Thank you for abiding my, I, I won't call them insightful, but my, uh, my views. And uh, thank you all for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. As always, you can find us on Twitter. David's Twitter handle is... David underscore underscore Moser. I am at Jeremiah Jenny on Twitter. And you can always send us a message. And we'll talk to you again. 